This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. In today's programme. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Je demande ce soir, restez autant que possible à leur domicile. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. Liebe Mitbürgerinnen, liebe Mitbürger, das Coronavirus... What else? The coronavirus pandemic and the massive, unthinkable in fact, just a few weeks ago changes it has brought to all our lives. Empty classrooms and corridors as schools and universities close their doors. The government ordered the immediate closure of almost all the places we go to for leisure, with bars, pubs, restaurants and gyms among them. My guests, Dr Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization. This is not in living memory. They really haven't seen an outbreak like this really for a hundred years. We're looking back to the 1919 pandemic of flu. And Professor Vin Kim Nguyen, medical doctor, social anthropologist and co-director of the Centre on Global Health at Geneva's Graduate Institute. I think the economic consequences will be disastrous, but maybe this is the time to imagine something different. The courage that we ask of people has to be a courage of imagination as well. The coronavirus has gone global and so has the fear. The World Health Organization says the coronavirus outbreak is now officially a pandemic. We've all heard a great deal about the virus, perhaps more than we want to. But I'd hazard a guess that when we first became aware of its existence just a couple of months ago, very few of us could have imagined we'd be living under lockdown with schools and just about everything else closed. Today, we'll unpick what that means for us, for our society, for our economy and for our future. One immediate change, we can't bring our guests into the studio. So when I asked the WHO's Margaret Harris to explain how we ended up here, she joined me via Skype. This is a novel virus, and it's novel in any every way. It's not just novel biologically. It's had an untoward effect, unexpected effect on many, many, many societies. So, indeed, health systems haven't developed expecting to have a huge pandemic. We have always described this as a possibility. We have always communicated about the need for preparedness. But, to be honest, it's understandable that countries that have managed most of the infectious disease threats through effective vaccination programs were not expecting something like this to arrive. This one is quite different. It's very clear. We've never actually seen entire cities, now entire countries, put into quarantine to stop people moving. But we have seen in Wuhan that it worked. It's a drastic measure. So it really is of a, a very different world. Three of Europe's biggest economies have imposed national lockdowns. Spain is Europe's second worst-hit country. With a different world indeed. The very fabric of our lives has gone. The cafes, libraries, museums, gyms, all shut down. Families living in different towns or countries can't meet. But Professor Vin Kim Nguyen, who joined me via Skype from his native Canada, where he has been recruited to join that country's fight against the pandemic, 
believes we don't have a choice. All the indications are that this is the only thing we can do to avert catastrophe. We will know in the next few days whether the kind of lockdown imposed in Italy has worked. It's a simple question of mathematics. So the more you limit contact, the more you decrease transmission exponentially. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. When you look at numbers like that, and when you think if I see two people, and you can multiply it out for yourself, but you end up with a very different picture. So mathematically, any difference helps. But empirically, we do not have evidence for that because it takes two weeks to see a difference because the numbers we have today reflect what happened two weeks ago because it takes two weeks for people to get sick. So I would say we need to hang in and we'll know more next week. But there's there's not much else we can do because to keep going on as we were going on, as, as was realized in Italy, was just catastrophic. It was the scenario of people, I mean, so I, I worked in Ebola epidemics in West Africa. It was that scenario. It was people, it would be people dying in the street at the doors of hospitals. That was what was going to happen. Good evening. The World Health Organization says Europe is now the epicenter of the global coronavirus pandemic. Millions of people in Europe are now entering their second, third, fourth, or even more weeks of lockdown. We watch each day as the new case numbers in our countries are released, hoping for a decline. But here's the thing, says Margaret Harris. Lockdowns, separation, distancing won't defeat this virus. Physical distancing measures are really important. They're an important way of slowing down the spread of the virus and buying time so that you don't get large numbers of people coming into casualty into hospital at the same time. But it won't end the outbreak. You really need also very targeted tactics, testing every suspected case. So that's why we keep saying testing, 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 and making sure they really are isolated, either self-isolated if they have to be at home or in a hospital or quarantine centre. But also, and this is the hard work and the hard yards, finding every person who's been in contact with those people and quarantining them. So that's really, really hard work. That is what does work. And why do you think European countries aren't doing that? You think they're lazy? Not at all. I think that they've not necessarily been geared to this kind of outbreak. So most of the outbreaks we work on have happened in other parts of the world. You've seen that Singapore has managed their outbreak. They have had cases, but they've kept their numbers right down and very slowly, simply by using very strong identification of everybody who's got a case and following them, isolating them, making sure they've got a place to isolate them, making sure they follow them. And Singapore had SARS, and they really, really learned their lesson from that. And they also have other things like dengue fever. So they're used to infectious diseases as a threat to their community. Has it occurred to you at the World Health Organization that the kind of measures you're asking for, particularly that quite extensive, well, very extensive tracing, tracking, quarantine, it's going to be very hard for Western democracies to actually do. I'm talking about the political acceptability of that kind of measure. 
So on political acceptability, again, with any infectious disease outbreak, we do say that political engagement is an is absolutely key to successful control of um, infectious diseases. We also say community engagement. So it's more than just one thing. But indeed, it's hard for people in Europe. They really haven't seen an outbreak like this really for a hundred years. We're looking back to the 1919 pandemic of flu was the last time they had a threat like this going through communities. So this is not in living memory. There are very, very few people alive today who were alive then. What do you think about the fears from some human rights organisations that some governments may introduce really very restrictive measures and very socially invasive measures, and then just keep them. This is always a balance that's got to be kept uppermost. And this is one of the greatest difficulties with public health, because public health is about everybody banding together, doing what's good for the community. But the individual may indeed feel that it's not necessarily good for them. So, in fact, a large part of our work is looking at how you do maintain human rights while doing something across a community that's necessary to stop an outbreak. You don't think some of these measures might go too far? In each country, you need to do an assessment. You need to understand what is and is not acceptable in your community. Each community is different. So that's why we have overarching recommendations like test, follow people, get people into isolation. But we don't say exactly how you must do that because in each community, in each country, there are different ways. In some countries, you can ask people to self-isolate at home. In other countries, if you've got 30 people in a house, you can't self-isolate. So each community has to do things differently. Clearly then, the struggle to finish off COVID-19, some political leaders have called it a war, will have many consequences unrelated to the virus itself. That's something Vin Kin Nguyen has been thinking very deeply about. What I realized in my gut, as opposed to cognitively, is that there's no way we get out of this without, I think, crashing the global economy is an understatement. I think we're going to have a broad global economic collapse from which we will emerge into a new world order. A new world is being destroyed and reborn in front of our very eyes. And and that was the enormity of what I was contemplating last night as I was looking at the curves. That's probably a bit hard for a lot of people to hear. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, that's why I had kind of a sleepless night. I mean, if, if I were to unpack this more slowly, what we know is that the epidemic, if we fail to contain it, will peak in the next six weeks, six to eight weeks in most places, will cause many, many dead. So you've got this one scenario, which is the short, sharp epidemic. Uh, I think this was the scenario that was briefly envisaged by the British government, where you kind of take your losses, you know, uh, and then you generate herd immunity, although we don't know what kind of immunity this epidemic generates. That's the, in a sense, if I dare say it, the optimistic scenario in terms of global disruption. Everything grinds to a halt for two months and then the machine just starts up again. 
the mitigation and containment scenarios where you're able to, to flatten the curve or bend the curve so that you have less excess deaths from, because of a health system that can't respond, these all suggest much longer periods of economic and social disruption. So the way I see it, either option, one is a, an epidemic devastating but limited, devastating in terms of uh, illness and death, but limited in terms of its long-term economic impact versus a much long wave epidemic, which will, of course, uh, cause immense personal suffering and death, but not as much, but will lead to profound long-term economic damage and, and destructuring. So that doesn't sound better, does it? <laughs> Not really, no. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I, I tried to, wanted to, to interview you was because we're in a, a stage now where millions, billions really, of, of people, we're being asked to do things we just can't quite get our heads around. We can't go to work, we can't go out. Even the food shops, which are the only things open, um, we can only go in one at a time. And already you can see the, the, the difficulties socially. Um, so the question is, how can this last? Um, I, I think people can adapt. But uh, I, you know, I'm in, in Montreal where it's a milder form of lockdown. But I haven't left my flat in three days. And I, I think um, there's... Tremendous. We, we have a lot of tools at our disposal to cope with this. I mean, we have Internet and Netflix and this kind of stuff. But uh, it is th this has been the challenge, right? The balance between sort of scaring people and getting them to change their behavior on the basis of an invisible, intangible, because you can be transmitting without being sick threat. Uh, it's a big it's a big challenge. The thing that we have as a resource is solidarity, right? Is that uh, the glue that holds us together. Do you think if a politician was to say it, put it the way you just put it now, it's either short, sharp, shot right now, lots of deaths, or it's a long, drawn-out mitigation and the economy crashed. Which do you think people would go for? Which would you go for? I don't know. Well, personally, I, I'm concerned I, about the public health consequences of a global economic crash, about yes, the suicides, the job losses, the 10 yes, years of austerity yes, to our public yes. services. So when people say I'm a pessimist and I say I'm a realist, it depends on our personal uh, – I, I think people tend to be – optimistic. A friend of mine wrote just this morning, uh, we were chatting and he wrote something. He said, this is the time to imagine another world. So maybe that's naive and foolish and delusional, or maybe it's the start of something. I, I think it, it's really a fundamentally emotional question. I too worry. I, I think the economic consequences will be disastrous, but maybe, maybe this is the time to imagine something different. So I think the courage that we ask for of people has to be a courage of imagination as well. This outbreak is testing us in many ways. It's a test of political solidarity. People watching the World Health Organization handle this crisis have credited its leader, Dr. Tedros, with both courage and imagination. The bottom line is solidarity, solidarity, solidarity.
But if and when the world does get through this, there will be questions, investigations, perhaps even blame. Was this all worth it? Did we do the right thing? Margaret Harris again. There is always that risk, because if you are the body there to protect public health, you are also the body that is most likely to be scapegoated when everybody is facing a threat like this. We, right from the start, had warned very, very loudly. We declared a public health emergency of international concern. Our warnings weren't heard. And honestly, we do understand why, as I said before, many of the countries that are now suffering terrible, terrible outbreaks had no experience of this. The feeling was it happens to someone else somewhere else. Even the the, the first narratives were that, oh, yeah, well, most people have a mild disease. You know, it only affects older people. It's now very clear this is not true. We were saying it was not true, but it's, again, human nature. It is understandable that people didn't realize what a threat it was until it arrived on the doorstep. This is a very, very difficult time. And we are certainly not saying that people should be in lockdown for long term. And why don't you, since since you're at the WHO and you're a doctor, why don't you hazard a, a time frame on that? Because that's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I still haven't found that crystal ball. But we are looking at months because we have very, very large outbreaks. I'm not saying looking at months of people being in lockdown, but I am saying we are looking at months of really before we can feel comfortable that the world has managed to bring this down. There are now more than a million confirmed cases worldwide. The global death toll has passed 50,000 people. The economic consequences of this escalating outbreak because it sparked sharp falls on stock markets for a second day. But already we know things have changed and will change more. Millions of workers have been sent home. Millions of children can't go to school. So how will we be when life returns to normal? The last word goes to Vin Kim Nguyen. Older and wiser? Um, I have no idea. I, I, to be honest, uh, this was one of the things I was thinking about. You know, my partner is in Europe. I can't get back. Uh, will I get sick? Uh, will there be airlines in six months? Or will it all be back to normal? I think it'll be all pretty much back to a new normal. Um, But I don't know what that new is. So that's our message from Inside Geneva for this week. Imagine a new normal. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth discussion on the race for a vaccine against the coronavirus and a special documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time. And thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. 
In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.